welcome to Talking Insights Tech Edition, a new series where we explore the biggest tech news of today. We'll be diving into the world of privacy, discovering artificial intelligence, understanding big data, and looking at the other technology that will shape our tomorrow. Along the way, I'll be joined by thought leaders, colleagues, researchers, and more, who will help unpack the ever-changing technological landscape. We want to help you better understand the new digital frontier for yourself, your family, your business, and for society as a whole. Welcome to the technological age. The world of technology is evolving at a breakneck pace. The past 10 years alone have seen the proliferation of smartphones, high-speed internet, streaming, the growth of social media titans, and cryptocurrency transforming from a theory into a highly valued commodity. And of course, the mainstream rise of the topic that we're looking at today, artificial intelligence. AI may conjure up images of science fiction characters like HAL 9000 or the Terminator, but while AI may not currently be seeking to destroy humanity, lawmakers are concerned enough about the potential misuse of AI that they're acting now to safeguard the future. This week, a draft proposal of the EU's flagship AI regulation was leaked, and its contents make for interesting reading as we face an increasingly automated future. Joining me today to discuss this text, as well as AI in general, are two fellow young privacy and tech enthusiasts. I'm delighted to be joined by Bianca Marku, PhD researcher at the Law, Science, Technology and Society Research Group at the Frey University in Brussels, where she specializes in data protection law and fundamental rights. Prior to starting her PhD, Bianca was part of the professional standards team at ESMA and held research positions at human rights NGOs. She's also the coordinator of the CPDP conference, which takes place every January in Brussels, is a certified data protection officer, and holds an LLM from Maastricht University. And I'm also joined by my colleague Claudio Gennaro, Senior Advocacy Programs Coordinator at ESMA. Claudio supports the work of ESMA's Legal Affairs Committee, leads our Plus Data Protection Consultancy Service, and was previously a data privacy analyst at Tesla. Claudio holds a CIPP certification, an LLM from the University of Palermo, and a postmaster specialization in space policies and institutions from the Italian Society for International Organization and the Italian Space Agency. And I am, of course, as always, your host, Shrika Govindaraju. Claudio and Bianca, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you, Shrika. Yes, thank you for having us. It's great to be here. So let's uh, let's kick off with the big news of the week then, which is the leaked draft of the EU AI regulation. I'm sure yourselves and many others out there have been busy poring over the details for the past few days. Uh, and this is, of course, going to be the landmark uh, piece of like, regulation which the EU puts forward to govern AI use in the future. Um, so based on this first read and this first draft that we've seen, uh, Bianca, let's start with you. What are your initial thoughts on this regulation and and the approach that the EU is taking? So <clears throat> initial thoughts, I think it was, first of all, really interesting that the regulation was leaked ahead of its release date, uh, which is actually intended to be on the 21st of April. But so it's good to bear in mind that what we're looking at is a draft. And so the final text, you know, will likely have some modifications um, when it is released. But to kind of give a brief overview for the listeners that haven't had a chance to read it, I think the most significant things uh, from this proposal were that the, the European Commission proposes to essentially ban the use of high-risk uh, artificial intelligence systems. So, for example, uh, some of these high-risk systems include um, the social scoring systems, like the ones that um, are launched in China, to 
track uh, and to rate the trustworthiness of people on the basis of uh, certain characteristics. Mm -hmm. And also high risk would be some uh, AI technologies that are deployed to essentially indiscriminately surveil the population at large or any systems that might be used to manipulate the behavior or the opinions or decisions uh, of people. But there are, of course, always uh, exceptions, uh, especially those that give discretion to national authorities, you know, that would potentially allow them to integrate these type of AI systems um, into infrastructure and initiatives uh, to protect uh, in the interest of national security, essentially. So that was just a brief overview. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Claudia, what's your take? Do you think um, this is the right approach from the EU? Or what's the attitude that we're seeing from them here when it comes to, to regulating mm -hmm. AI? Well, first of all, on a, on a lighter note, I'm a great fan of Isaac Asimov novels, iRobots, yes. <laughs> robotic. And it was super, uh, I mean, super interesting to go and read um, this proposal. Um, of course, it's some kind of an evolution of the three laws of robotic by Asimov. Um, it's super interesting, in my opinion, the definition, the proposed mm -hmm. definition of artificial intelligence in this case, uh, which means software that is developed with one or more of the approaches and technique um, for a given or set human-defined objectives, general outputs, prediction, recommendation, or decision influencing real or virtual environments, and especially the real or virtual environments. Yeah. I think um, it opens the door for many of the future applications, especially if we start thinking about um, augmented reality and virtual reality. Um, it's really in it's really in depth document. Um, the prohibited artificial intelligence practices, um, the list of prohibition. Uh, it's really high level. And I think the objective here is to create some kind of a framework that it may be future-proof. Um, we learned with the previous directive and regulation that it's not possible for the legislator to for, to to make provisions, to make forecasts of what the technology will evolve and what will be the use cases. And I guess learning from these mistakes, the direction is to create a document which is as future-proof as possible. Um, and I appreciate that the prohibited uh, practices are don't define are are not defining in practice what uh, the prohibited use may be, but just um, a general overview and a general um, framework to protect what the European values are. And I, I see it positively. I see it very positively in mm. general. Yeah, I also think that it's it's quite it's quite an impressive text. I mean, mm. it's I think over eighty pages long, um, attempted yeah. to to address and to regulate something that is is very complex. Um, it's also the first kind of regulation of its kind. I think that puts that puts Europe in a very unique position in a similar way to the unique position uh, that the EU was in with the GDPR. You know, just a few years ago. Um, but it also, I think, points to one of those kind of usual struggles uh, that we've seen, you know, with the EU regulating technology and data and markets, which is that it always has to find a balance between facilitating innovation on the one hand and then mitigating potential negative effects of a particular technology on society or, or on a group of people. <clears throat> I think it's quite also quite a 
you could say it's quite a human-centric approach uh, in the AI rules. And I think it was really interesting. What I really liked is that there was some attention given to the data sets uh, that AI systems are trained on so as not to incorporate potential biases. And it was interesting that they incorporated uh, both intentional and unintentional biases that might potentially lead to discrimination. So think, uh, you know, of trying to avoid issues of gender and racial bias uh, that, that researchers so far have identified in some AI systems. Um, I think that's that's quite a big point and, and something that uh, people, I think, would expect from a regulation of this kind. Yeah, that was that was also something really positive, I think, about it. And it's also really, really actual. And I think it covers very actual um, threats or in general uh, practices that are seen as potentially uh, disruptive for the market. If we go and check the what are the prohibited practices? We see that uh, it's prohibited to manipulate human behavior and decision-making. Uh, we see that it's prohibited to exploit information or prediction about a person or a group of person to carry on indiscriminate surveillance. If we think about the opinions that we, um, the opinion on facial recognition policies in the EU, uh, we see this actually, it's actually very, um, it's very contemporary. It's not a document um, it's not a document, it will be applicable 10 years, 15 years from now. It, it covers really current problematics. Yeah, I think you guys raise a lot of interesting points there. So looking at things like future-proofing, looking at uh, looking at bias, you know, bias is something that I think researchers deal with a lot of the time as well. There's been a lot of conversation, you know, within SMR and beyond as well, looking at bias within data sets, which are being used to to train these AIs, to, to train these algorithms. So we, we've looked at the input and we've looked at the output and one thing that i'm curious to get your thoughts on and this is you know if you look this as the ai counterpart to the gdpr one of the issues that we've encountered with the gdpr is bianca as you mentioned that kind of balancing act between innovation and protection and also enforcement as well so gdpr enforcement has become quite problematic as as the document itself has aged when we see really different interpretations and applications uh, of these principles in different countries. Uh, so I think first, let's just take a look at enforcement-wise. You know, the, the AI AIPR, I guess, if we, if we shorten it to that, does propose, similar to the GDPR, these uh, you know national regulatory agencies, national regulatory bodies. What, what do you think the dangers are that we are going to see as we have the GDPR, this kind of divergent approach in different countries which is also influenced you know by the economy of the country and the business and, and what the needs are uh, in that sense um bianca what do you what are your thoughts i think it's going to be interesting to see <clears throat> how it works in practice um from the enforcement perspective it's going to be interesting to see who um, who takes responsibility, which authority uh, will will have the responsibility in the end. Mm -hmm. um, but I think it I think it was to be expected that there would be um, a national authority um, tasked with monitoring the enforcement of the regulation. If we take some of the examples from enforcement under the GDPR, 
we saw that, that there have been some issues, for example, with um, potentially the um, Data Protection Commission in Ireland, uh, if I get the name correctly, um, and others. You know, there are issues of um, who will start an investigation or who will um, continue an investigation. And there's also the one-stop shop mechanism uh, under the GDPR. I think some of in some of these cases, we've seen that it's worked and in, and in some cases, not as well. And I think with something uh, such as trying to regulate AI systems, which is potentially uh, the next step in terms of mm -hmm. complexity, it's, yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how it works in practice. Do you think, is there any risk that um, different member states will take different approach in regulating with local regulations? I think it's, well, this is uh, links back to this idea of innovation, which, um, which Bianca mentioned earlier as well, because obviously, you know, all, all countries want to foster innovation. They want to foster their young talent and their, their tech sectors. And I, I think maybe if it's left up to these national bodies to strike that balance between okay, we're trying to safeguard against AI, but we also want to, we don't want to deter these companies from exploring this technology, right? We don't want to put off a potential billion-dollar unicorn company from really exploring their potential because they're so caught up in, in red tape. So it, uh, you mentioned Ireland there, Bianca, which I think is an interesting example when you look at you know the number of tech companies that are based in Ireland. One, because okay, it's favorable tax rules, but there's also this favorable approach to data protection. And it could be with this AI regulation, a new country might seek to make that name for itself as the destination for, for AI. Whereas, you know, it's Ireland right now for these kind of social media companies. Maybe another country wants to throw its hat into the ring when it comes to AI and say, hey, AI developers, uh, come and join us over here. Uh, hmm. I don't know what to take. <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I guess you have to kind of keep in mind that at the moment, yeah, it's very much about um, innovation. It's very much about, in, this, in the same way that the GDPR was about protecting the fundamental right to data protection on the one hand, and on the other hand, it was about the digital single market and making sure that data can mm -hmm. flow freely uh, and under the same rules. Um, I think with this, uh, you will have yeah something similar where um, at the moment also, there is this awareness that most that the US and China essentially are leading the way in terms of um, the development of AI systems. Yeah. And if the EU implements a very tough kind of regulation with a lot of red tape or a lot of different procedures or a lot of write out bans, um, well, I don't think that would happen actually, because um, from a competition perspective, it's probably not it's the kind best of idea. Shooting yourself in the foot that way, yeah. If you if you ban something entirely, <laughs> uh, from competition perspective, there is another point that really made me curious on how this uh, document will be welcomed by the developers in particular. Mm -hmm. So, if we check on the documentation and record uh, record keeping, uh, there is this obligation for companies to provide or to document all relevant information regarding the technical solution used by the provider to ensure that high-risk AI system comply with the requirements, which, if I, if I understand correctly, it means you need to be able to provide a lot and to uncover the uh, the algorithm behind AI 
behind the scenes, um, which I don't think it will be received very well from the IP protection for intellectual property perspective. I don't know how many big companies who are making right now big investments um, will be happy to share uh, with this with European bodies uh, the, the the secrets of their algorithm or in general uh, what lies behind it. Uh, I'm really curious to see from a competition point of view how this will will be enforced. In fact, mm-hmm. I absolutely see the reason why it's important to do it. Uh, but then maybe it also opened the door to another discussion, which is uh, to open source some kind, to have an obligation to open source some kind of AI, especially high risk maybe, and especially if used by public authorities. It's a really fascinating topic because on one side, I understand, and I think it's quite normal to um, to expect that most companies will do not want to jeopardize their investment and the time spent on this uh, on this system, on their side, public will to know more, to know what lies behind this decision. And the will to control and the expectation of transparency that um, citizens have regarding AI that might be used by public authorities. Um, And I'm surprised not to see any mention regarding open sourcing, some kind of activities, some kind of application, especially if made by public authorities. That's something that I would like to see maybe uh, as a a discussion. Yeah, I would like to see more reference to open source in the latest development of these documents, but that's probably a discussion for another time. Do you you think open sourcing, though, it might... Could could this act as a deterrent, is what I'm wondering. This this document as it is, which, you know, uh, will inevitably go through some revisions before we see... Uh, the final version and you know when we consider that there's already businesses out there who maybe as you said Claudio, you know putting a lot of money into developing ai or automation solutions or some of them may say they're already using ai solutions but that's we'll touch on that later that's one of those kind of if everything is ai nothing is ai issues but you know these companies that say they're using ai is this going to be something that with restricts them from pursuing this this automated or, you know, uh, the AI is in the pursuit of efficiency, I guess, ultimately. So are we going to see companies perhaps take a step back from this and think, okay, let's maybe wait until this regulation is finalized, until it's out there before we then recommit any resources to, you know, to developing our proprietary AI? Uh, If we go and check what are the prohibited practices in this document, I guess open source might solve Many of them. Let's see the first one. Do not manipulate human behavior. If you open source the code, you can see what the mani- where the manipulation may be. Uh, do not discriminate. Um, so remove any bias, which is um, on the background of the of the algorithm. Open source might help spotting these eventual biases and and remove them. Um, general prohibited purpose of uh, scoring of natural persons. Again, if you are aware of what uh, what lies behind the algorithm, you might behave, you might uh, remove these biases again. Um, in general, I'm big proposer of open source for everything. Uh, open source is really on the, it's really it's really protecting basic human rights from exploitation, and uh, it's really democratizing uh, technology. In my opinion, 
I understand it's not economically viable in most cases, but at least for public authorities, at least for um, public agencies, I see it as a, as a pretty nice solution. And Bianca, what's what's your take? Because you're looking at privacy and you know as a fundamental right in particular, and a lot of the concern when it comes to use of automation automated technologies is actually their use by public authorities uh, as much as it is by private uh, enterprises. And do you think this document as it stands is really offering sufficient protection to people um, from these automated solutions, which may be used by you know, say public authorities, you know, used by governments, used by the police or you know, border forces? And what, what, what's your take on, on the protections that it offers right now? I think as Claudio, I think, uh, briefly mentioned it before, it's it's quite high level, right? It's quite, mm, in some places, it's quite vague. And indeed, as I also mentioned before, it's there are these exceptions uh, for public authorities to use AI systems for surveillance purposes, uh, targeting, uh, manipulating behaviors or opinions, um, uh, through using uh, high-risk systems, so long as it's in the interest of national security. Um, so, for example, you know, it could be fine uh, to go ahead uh, and deploy facial recognition in a, a large public square where there are a lot of people, you know, every day uh, for the purposes of keeping that square public square secure, or for the purposes of using the facial recognition to identify perhaps people who shouldn't be there but there are a lot of problems with these issues with these with these systems um bias is one of them which has come up um already in this discussion and i think there was so there's been quite a lot of research into uh, facial recognition in particular and the bias that yeah. exists within that which is a particularly big point that's emerged in the past few years um there's a quite a famous researcher at the MIT Media Lab, uh, Joy Bolwamini. She pioneered a lot of the research into how bias is built into AI systems and facial recognition in particular. And uh, there are a lot uh, more people looking into this. But I think one of the key points there was that once uh, uh, an AI system is trained on a biased data set, it's very, very difficult to essentially undo it. Mm -hmm. um, it is it is difficult to correct, and I think if you know it is part of this regulation to address uh, potential bias within data sets, I would also like to see some specific guidance uh, on how this might be done. I think it's going to affect the whole kind of um, ecosystem of people working on developing AI systems. You know, from the engineers to the data scientists to uh, the users to to the businesses themselves or potentially public authorities, depending on, on what the use is. Um, and it's going to change the way that they work um, because it's, it's a big regulation. So what will be that guidance? And will that guidance be at the European-wide level? Or will it be, you know, will certain member states start to prescribe more stringent uh, type, of, uh, type of rules? Will they... You know, what is going to be, we need a, a kind of ground um, upon which these rules are, are mm -hmm. unified in some way. So as to avoid fragmentation and kind of 
uh, confusion, to avoid potential erosion of fundamental rights. And also from the business perspective, you want that sort of unified, you know, those unified rules. You don't want to, to implement slightly different compliance program in a, each different country or, or anything like that. I think it's interesting you mentioned that you know looking at different countries let's 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 take this out beyond the EU now because if the GDPR was anything you know as well as being a successful first take it a privacy law it's also been hugely influential around the world there's been a lot of countries which in the years since have built their own data protection regulation that's either modeled on the GDPR or you know takes it as a starting point and then develops it further you know, we're looking at countries like Brazil, we're looking at many states in the US and India. Uh, how, do you think this AI regulation might have a similar effect? Are we going to see, okay, the EU is taking the first step in terms of getting this regulation out there slightly earlier than they thought, given this leak? But is this going to spur other countries around the world to start regulating their own uh, AI sectors? And, you know, maybe, as you said a couple of times now, are they perhaps going to adopt a less strict approach to to try and encourage that that innovation in their countries. Claudia, what do you think, um, taking a look globally? I think we can see maybe some similarities with GDPR, where the document is maybe not um, intended to regulate uh, technical details on a technical level, but to spread and enforce what European values are, um, respect for human rights, quality, inclusion, um, I see some similarities with it. Maybe the intention of the legislator in this case is not to regulate um, each technical aspect of uh, AI, uh, but to promote what the European values, what the European vision is on this sector and influence how other countries uh, will, develop, will develop their own, uh, their own legislation on the basis of these shared values or these values that actually might not be that shared, but that we want to promote uh, globally. In general, I think it's our duty or our, yeah, it's our duty as Europeans to promote uh, the values where, the values that mm, are the, really the base or the, the ground of our, of our society, uh, which might not, be the might not be perfect, but is based on very on a very high level of ethical and moral grounds, and I, I don't see it as, as as bad to try and influence others to 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 align mm. with what we perceive to be good. And what what do you think, Bianca? Though, because you mentioned earlier that. You know, at the moment, the U.S. and China are kind of seen as the you know, the world leaders in the space. I mean, are we going to see maybe the U.S. certain individual states now are taking steps to bring in their own uh, privacy laws? You know, California famously in Virginia. Uh, let's look at how about China? Though, do you think you know China with the fact that they do have a social credit system already, which is explicitly forbidden by this regulation? Will we see anything similar in China, for example, or or in India even? when it comes to AI? Well, first of all, I think that it might be forbidden here uh, if it is in the form um, that it currently is in China. But there's, there's you know, nothing to say that there will not be, uh, because high-risk systems can still be deployed in the EU, uh, except 
some of the ones that are banned. Again, it's a little bit difficult. But um, if they go through uh, certain steps, uh, then they might be able to to operate in Europe. I think it's it's interesting what Claudio mentioned about the kind of the European values, uh, which you know, as as a European myself, I've I've lived across different European countries, so I very much identify with with these values that you mentioned. But I think when it comes to law and legal principles, um, it's it was very interesting what happened with the GDPR and, and just how quickly it became the gold standard, you know, in, in mm. different countries. And it's not as if there hadn't been uh, data protection laws before that. There had been, but um, there was something about the GDPR that just took the world by storm. And I think um, in a way with this AI regulation, the fact that it applies to uh, developers of AI systems in third countries who want to offer their technology uh, here in the EU will also have to play by those same rules. So there is a sense of kind of extraterritorial application to it in a way. And if you think about the US, you know, when the GDPR first came out, that was a bit of... They weren't um, too happy. <laughs> yeah, let's say they weren't too happy because it's it's a different, it's a different approach. It's a different culture. It's, um, let's say, maybe more business-driven the more let's say fair, yeah. Exactly, and in China again, you have a different system, and so there, um, any regulation around data protection um, has been from the perspective of national security, um, mm. and so it's. I think whilst there is a tension because data flows are international and so on, um, and for developing an AI system, an, an AI system. Um, you might have teams, you know, in different parts of the world working on on the same project, for example. And so it's it's quite international sort of by nature. So, yeah, having different rules in different regions um, might lead to some issues. But I think that, you know, as we saw after the, the GDPR, um, yes, there was an initial panic, but we moved on, you know, um, mm -hmm. business adapts, uh, people adapt. W what I do hope for is that the rules are meaningful um, and that they're not just, you know, another set Window of com dressing. compliance, <laughs> yeah, compliance exercises, let's say. Mm -hmm. uh, do you think the, oh, sorry, do you think the pandemic played any role in shipping this document? I would think undoubtedly. I think, uh, especially from the public services side of things, you know, I think there's a lot that could have been done or that public authorities will think could have been done with the use of AI tools over the past year, which perhaps they weren't able to do uh, because the tools didn't exist or because the framework didn't exist for them to make them. We look at something, as Bianca mentioned, then the, let's say, crowd monitoring, uh, facial recognition tools, or even just object detection, uh, you know, in busy public spaces, in the past year, when we've been talking about social distancing and people staying at home and, you know, identifying perhaps trouble spots, you know, it's, it's sunny weather and suddenly everyone wants to go hang out in one particular park or in one particular, you know, beach somewhere. I think there would be an argument from public authorities that, that, you know, during the past year, some of these tools would have been very useful to them. And who knows? I mean... Knock on wood. So this is a uh, this pandemic is going away soon, but at the end of the day, we don't know when the next crisis like this might hit. Um, so I think you you 
you can understand why they might think, you know, for for the next time, let's be prepared. Let's have some uh, let's have some tools in place. I think it's interesting the uh, the example that you mentioned there because indeed there are, there have been some experiments in the Netherlands uh, on. Um, essentially monitoring uh, public spaces uh, using computer vision and different type of detection systems to see if people were keeping the 1.5 meter distance away from each other. And, you know, you could argue that, well, that is indeed uh, monitoring surveillance of a public mm-hmm. space uh, with a view to influencing the behavior of, of the people there. At, at one point, they had a kind of a screen where you could see the live feed of the public square, essentially. Um, and, and you could see yourself and if other people were also uh, physically distant enough. Um, and the idea is that once, you know, uh, that distance is too short, it's, it's under one and a half meters, that, you know, there is a kind of red flash or there is a kind of warning that, you know, you need to move away from each other. So that is influencing. But you can argue that it's in the interests of public health, right? And mm-hmm. so uh, that is an exception that's quite quite a big one. Yeah, without getting too far down the rabbit hole of uh, is, is it personally identifiable information? You know, if, you're, if you happen to be going for a walk through the middle of Amsterdam and you show up on a big screen, uh, is that personal information about you if you happen to be caught in the field of view of an object tracking camera. I think we, we enter some uh, gray area when it comes to privacy there as well. Well, is, is your face, um, is, is your face, you know, personal information? Well, of course it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, your face or more kind of the placement of your body in a, sp- this is getting a bit abstract. Um, Claudio, I think you want to it jump be, in it with something. Your doppelganger. <laughs> it could be your doppelganger <laughs> as well. And then it's not your face anymore. Maybe another data subject has the right to obtain yeah for their face but it's okay we're going way too far no um i would probably just repeat myself um it's good to have this high level documents uh and to have black on uh, on white what the european values are and how these data are going to use and i think it also fosters the trust of the of the public in providing their data for the good purposes let's say for uh, contact tracing um knowing how your data are going to use knowing that it will need it always need to bite to some higher moral laws and ethical um, ethical rules i think it fosters trust public trust mm-hmm. now data are used for the public good um gdpr future privacy these documents i think it will play a crucial role um especially in the light of new technologies and how many data will be collected soon um trust is important if public doesn't trust that their data will be used in a correct way. It will be stored um, correctly. Their access will be restricted. And eventually, when they're not useful anymore, they will totally be deleted. Then I think many more people will probably install on their smartphone contract contact tracing app, and next pandemic will be shorter. Again, I see this document as extremely positively. Mm-hmm. And I'm really looking forward to see how it will develop. Yeah, me too. I, I also see it positively. I think uh, it's a really good, I mean, yeah, it's it's a really good step. Uh, I think it's also challenging, you know, this conception that, that a business operates only in the interest of its shareholders. Um, this becomes mm-hmm. quite difficult when you work in the context or when you work with complex technologies such as AI, where the impact of society can be so far reaching. 
you know, a sense of responsibility and, and duty of care can no longer be ignored. And I think it's interesting. That's, that's quite from the business perspective. And it makes me think also some of the feedback that I, I uh, read about from some industry associations kind of reacting to uh, this, the regulation and indeed, you know, the, the way that they contextualize their concerns was very much um, in the context of these AI systems that are expected to play a really important role in Europe's economic recovery in our coming out of this crisis, of this pandemic and healthcare and innovation, but also in environmental issues uh, or environmental initiatives and the role that AI systems can play there. So, there were some concerns around what is considered to be high risk. Maybe that's too narrowly defined. And again, you know, as, as lawyers, we know that, you know, the devil is in the details and it's all about those mm -hmm. definitions. Um, so there are these concerns, again, that, you know, innovation might be stifled. And uh, as we mentioned before, you know, business can just go elsewhere. They can, uh, you know, just go, for example, to the U.S. where the rules are much more relaxed or, in some places non-existent that's um i think as a final note on this i do want to touch on you know we were going a little bit down the rabbit hole again let's let's fully jump down the rabbit hole here let's uh because oh, <laughs> the, the things you've been talking about all, all all that comes to mind for me are a lot of famous science fiction kind of examples you know we're talking about global ai development and you think okay well when you think about true ais if they have access to the internet then regulation makes no difference right they can go anywhere on the planet and, you know, Claudio, you mentioned this kind of open sourcing and explainable AI. But one of the things that AI researchers talk about a lot is this uh, black box problem, you know, which is if you have a true intelligence, you can give it an input and you'll get an output. But what happens in between, you can't really explain because it's it's operating at a level of intelligence, which is so complex, you know, kind of like the human brain with all these different connections being made. How could you ever really explain what's really gone on? Are we finally going to talk about general and super artificial intelligence? I think, that's I think we, we should. I, I think we should. Well, because, uh, I, I, what I want to know from you guys is, is there a problem with how we talk about AI? Because we know there's a lot of companies out there who say, we use artificial intelligence technology, and they, what they mean is, okay, we use a bit of machine learning. You know, we have all these kind of pop culture, this really laden history of AI in the public conscience that comes from all these famous movies and stories. You mentioned Isaac Asimov and you look at, you know, 2001 A Space Odyssey, iRobot, everything else. Is there a problem with how we talk about AI? And is this something that this regulation will help or is it just going to muddy the waters even more? Well, it's good that we are at least trying to give a written definition of what AI is. I don't know if the actual definition of AI will survive the proof of time. That's probably the biggest test. And it would be interesting to see how the obligation of having a um, human overview and human control of the AI is actually something that is technically feasible um, with many machine learning activities. Um, again, it's really difficult to try and for make a forecast of what AI will be, how it will develop, and what it will be used for. Oh, good things. <laughs> <laughs> having a definition of high risk is definitely something that it was needed and having a list of high level prohibition is something that is definitely needed because it's something that you can con 
you can control at the beginning uh, the starting phase of the project maybe but again can you really control how the final product it would be given that the algorithm will learn by itself with the, of course with the data sets that you feed it into it but can you really control what the final product it will be can your te- can your product develop into something that is not what you planned and not what you uh, initially tested and you know, I have, I have many questions. I <laughs> this is a the thing that I like of this document is as a great starting point. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, it's definitely not. It's not the so, end game for, yeah, uh, for AI absolutely. regulation. Mm-hmm. I see it more as a chart, as a chart of values, some some starting point that will need to be followed up. Also, because we are right now, we are talking about AI in general. But we have so many different aspects, and probably we will need to invite some technical person in the next episode so that you can yeah. the uh, technicalities <laughs> that we are uh, missing right now. Yeah, I think I think at the moment, and I see what you what you were saying before, Claudio, about this regulation. You know, having how it, how important it is for it to be future proof, basically, and and whilst that it's very difficult, I think. Right now, what we're seeing with this AI regulation is that maybe for the time being, what we're really talking about is the governance of algorithms. But it's very difficult to understand a lot of the terminology around AI because also so many terms are used interchangeably. Uh, And so it's likely that, you know, for many people, when they think about AI, you know, you instantly think to Hollywood, you think about science fiction, the Terminator, iRobot. I know I do, yeah. (laughs) And so on, right? Um, But, and I thought um, the definition adopted by this draft regulation was really interesting. It's uh, it's pointing, it's goal-oriented AI systems. Uh, that's what it's referring to. And I think in the document, they also referred to AI as a kind of family of technologies, which I liked, I think is probably quite accurate because at the moment, AI is something that, that includes different techniques, different approaches. You have people working in machine learning or deep learning uh, or robotics and so on. So I think, you know, the problem is not is, is that when you're not working in the space uh, and you see all of these headlines, you know, about AI and, and where we're heading in the future and, and, you know, some articles use these really kind of dramatized images of, you know, robots taking over the world and, and so on. <laughs> And uh, also big tech companies saying that they're using AI for various products and that they're making so much progress. It causes this kind of sense of panic, maybe a kind of sense of a loss of control. Um, And I witnessed this also personally, you know, among connections when speaking with friends. Uh, And once you associate AI with iRobot or with the dystopian future, it's very hard to then try to explain those systems in a way that brings it back down to to earth in a way, in a, in a very relatable way, because yeah, it is very complex. And I think, you know, as Claudio mentioned, it's a, this is a really good first step in uh, trying to reach some agreement. Yeah. Fingers crossed. We, uh, we get an agreement before. I think some people, you know, you, you can compare the day we achieve a true artificial intelligence to perhaps the day that they successfully created an atomic bomb and that this is going to change the course of, human history it's going to change the course of um 
<clears throat> where we go from here. So yeah, well, let's hope that this uh, EU document is a good first step in making sure that we go towards a happy future uh, and not a Terminator dystopia somewhere down the line. Uh, and for anyone who's listening, if you do want more content on AI, make sure you check out Anna, which is SMR's resource library. There's articles on Research World. And of course, we've had previous episodes discussing AI on Talking Insights uh, with Zeno Koenigs of the XR base in Amsterdam. So moving on from, uh, I guess, the AI PR, let's, let's take a look at some other you know, stories or things that have caught our eye recently. And I, I want to share with you guys one that jumped out to me, which, okay, it's, it's a little gruesome. It was um, two people died in a crash in a Tesla uh, in the US uh, a few days ago, and there was no one in the driver's seat. And I think this has sparked a bit of a, you know, on following on to the AI conversation, it sparked a bit of a debate about the safety of, you know, autonomous vehicles, human input, like how much human input can you expect when you have these systems that are advertised to you uh, as self-driving? And, you know, it's concerns for the future because the, these this technology is becoming more and more widespread. It's, it's moved beyond Tesla now. You know, a lot of car makers uh, are offering this kind of self-driving, for a, lack of a better word, technology. Do you think the public is ready for this? Is uh, Are people ready for you know, that responsibility that comes with these automated tools or are we moving too fast? Are we seeing issues with automation taking place too soon? And I think there was also a very interesting discussion a few years ago in France when it came to self-driving cars. It was kind of a rephrasing of the trolley problem, the old philosophical question where, you know, if there's, let's say there's a self-driving car is going down the street and it has to avoid an obstacle But if it goes one way, it's going to drive towards an old lady. And if it goes the other way, it's going to drive towards a woman holding a baby. You know, what choice does the car make or what choice does this intelligence make uh, in that instance? I think it's it's, it's sad what has happened in the US, but I think it's raised a very interesting set of questions about automation and automatic uh, technology. Have you guys had a chance to to read this? What's your thoughts on, uh, on this issue? You mentioned there was no one driving the car, right? Yeah, so there was no one driving the drive, which is contrary both to the guidelines that are given by the car company, but also to the to the current federal laws, which all mandate that there must always be human overview in case of autopilot. So that's really particular case. Of course, this kind of incident always will always make the headline, but if we mm. if we analyze the case. The issue is not the autopilot. The issue is that no one was actually overviewing what the autopilot was doing. And this could be a wider... Well, this kind of ties back to what you mentioned in the AI regulation there as well, which is that there needs to be some human involvement uh, at some stage, which uh, does, that, does that not strike you as a little paradoxical, which is that we're trying to work towards this automated, seamless future, but at the same time, we're saying hmm, there needs to be a human there uh, at the end of the day, Bianca. I mean, what, what do you think? Are we... Uh, these two things kind of at odds with each other. I mean, I think we need to we need to think about what is the goal here. I mean, are we? And this is you know quite kind of a broad question. What what kind of future do we want to live in? And and what is the reason for which we are developing these tools? Why? What are the reasons behind it? You know, often with automation, 
you hear reasoning along the lines of uh, saving costs, uh, time efficiency, so saving um, uh, both uh, resources and also saving uh, people's time. Because then if I'm not there doing a sort of repetitive task, I can dedicate my time to something else. Uh, mm -hmm. Maybe something more creative, or something that requires, um, you know, emotional intelligence, or or something like that that a machine cannot do at this point in time. Um, but is is the goal to to arrive at these tools that essentially do everything for us? I'm not sure. I mean, I I don't. But know it's interesting you mentioned these these repetitive tasks or jobs then because I, I came across in some reading there's a concept called Polanyi's paradox which is talking about how when, when you carry out a certain action as a human being you're not just using your knowledge of carrying out that action you're also using a lot of unconscious accumulated knowledge about all kinds of different things in the background all these social norms and cultural issues and all these bits of information that you've picked up over the years actually affect how you carry out what might be a simple action? Let's say driving a car, for example. You know, in theory, driving a car, it's not the most difficult thing. But when you're actually driving a car, you're not just thinking about changing gears, pressing the accelerator, pressing the brake. There's a lot of other thoughts going on behind the scenes in your head that teach you, you know, rules of the road and giving people right of way, etc. That's not necessarily related to driving. That's more social norms that we also employ at the same time as doing this action. So. It raised a question for me of there's this kind of a futile goal, you know, where we're chasing this this automation, this kind of seamless connected future where we sit back and, yeah, we can all write poetry and paint paintings and the world takes care of itself. But perhaps that's not possible. Perhaps, um, you know, the human element is much more important than we think. Mm, I think it's interesting also with um, something that you just mentioned about how and more this kind of paradoxical element that, you know, you're supposed to create technology. Technology is supposed to work for you. Hmm. Instead, what ends up happening is that you adapt to it in a way. And so it doesn't work seamlessly and just integrate into the way things are, but rather things have to change for you to be able to work with this technology, whether you have to, you know, learn some new skills, whether you have to change your, I don't know, the way that you walk to work on the basis mm -hmm. of whatever algorithm, you have to kind of adapt to it. Um, and so is it even achieving that goal where it's making everything easier? There is another factor that we're probably missing here, which is hmm. we are talking about an autonomous agent in an environment with other human agents. So I'll how do we define whose liability is in the in yeah. this accident? For example, do we know uh, the dynamic of the incident? What was the behavior of the humans who were driving around the autopilot? The condition of the road? Um, there are so many variables here that it's very hard to make an assessment on whose fault is. We can probably agree that humans probably have some higher chance of uh, mistake on the road. Uh, the AI is probably not uh, distracted by phone, notification, by marketing advertisement on the road. 
Uh, there are so many variables here in assessing the reliability of the incident. It will always make the headline because it's mm -hmm. an AI system. But we are also talking about an AI which is not in the final product. It's not. Yeah. It's not a super uh, artificial intelligence yet. <laughs> it's not. Uh, it's not over the human capabilities yet. It's mm, probably not able to assess all the all the variables around um, to fully acknowledge the environment in which is, which is also again populated by humans, uh, I guess animals as well on the side of the road, uh, condition on the ground, weather. <laughs> a million other things at all. A million other things. <laughs> yeah. It's much easier to write the title saying that AI car kills two people in an accident, but reality most of the time is more... Yeah, I think legally we're, in a, legally and ethically we're in kind of a, a gray area here. And yeah, perhaps right, it's not it's not really an AI we're talking about. It's well, it's kind of a robot on wheels in a way. And I think robots brings us neatly onto Bianca. You wanted to share an article with us as well. Um, <laughs> would, you, would you talk us I, through what you brought? I did. Well, actually, as um, I just wanted to to share something that I'm finding really fascinating at the moment, which actually does fit in really well with what you just mentioned, basically in the sphere of AI and, and robotics. Um, it links back also to what your question, Trika, you know, and whether there's something wrong uh, with how we talk about AI at the moment. Um, so when you consider kind of the, the technological developments in the sphere of AI and robotics, it's quite likely that we might witness within our lifetimes uh, a highly autonomous robot with the capabilities that are comparable to ours, to those of human beings. It's only um, a bit terrifying, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so last month, uh, a paper came out looking at uh, reviewing some of the literature on whether ro robots should be given human rights. So the idea oh, okay. is that, you know, once they reach this level of intelligence that is equal to or perhaps even more so than that of humans, there, uh, there inevitably arise questions around their moral uh, and legal status. So what happens when we determine that this robot uh, possesses personhood or self-awareness or some kind of machine consciousness? You know, perhaps this is uh, here something more along the lines of what most people think of when they, when they uh, say or they, they think about the kind of true AI, you know? In fact, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that, um, you know, why we keep referring to AI for different things that actually, you know, might be very sophisticated systems, but might not be AI in the, in the original, I don't even know if I can say original, but in that sense of the word. So uh, going back to this kind of uh, robotics, so some, some people say that human rights should only apply to humans, right, by virtue of their humanity, mm -hmm. by virtue of human dignity, a robot cannot possibly be human because it's only made of flesh and blood. Whereas we, you know, we're born free, we're born equal under human rights law. So, you know, you could propose to assign an intelligent, uh, an autonomous robot, some kind of legal personality, similar to that of a corporation, for example. Of course, there are, there are, also, there are issues with that. But there's also the other side, which says that, you know, once this machine possesses a level of 
um, a level of autonomous uh, being with with a kind of machine consciousness and so on that we should stop seeing them as mere you know mindless tools that are just to be used by us whenever we feel like it in whatever circumstance. So we kind of at that point would have to recognize their status and their rights, which would have huge implications for how we consider ourselves as human, how we define ourselves, but also how we how we interact with non-human mm-hmm. things uh, and and so on. So I think this I think it's a fascinating topic. I think you know it touches upon so many things legal personality which in the case of you know the autonomous vehicles has always been a massive question um this idea of consciousness uh this idea of of you know highly autonomous um and also you know for what for what purpose are we developing these systems you know and and that can help us to maybe identify where we stand in relation yeah. to it and in, in the level of freedom or human rights or rights or whatever that we would be prepared to grant to it you remind me of um in in the video game series mass effect uh, there's a character who is you know for all intents and purposes sentient robot and there's a very famous line where he speaks to the main character and he says does this unit have a soul uh which really kind of touches on this exact uh, kind of idea of yeah Machines becoming human. Claudio, you mentioned Isaac Asimov way back at the start of uh, this conversation. I'm curious what your take is on this because I think uh, I'm super fascinated. Asimov definitely this, touched on a few of these ideas in, in his work as well. Putting the legal at again, then you will need to then you will need to do, to have a legal definition of consciousness or a legal definition of soul. Can you imagine how long mm. the <laughs> trilogue would be to agree on a legal <laughs> definition of consciousness? <laughs> Uh, That's gonna be something talking, we put to the we put to the commission sometime and see what their uh, talking see about what, their the, are. What, what Bianca mentioned. So, w- what is the purpose for which we are uh, building these machines? For well, for me, it might work any purpose which is not legally uh, prohibited. So, going back to the definition of freedom, what is freedom? Is any act that is not legally prohibited? So, why should it be different for any AI application, robotic application? Of course, it's probably I'm missing hundreds, millions of other variables here. But talking, I had this thing in mind while we were talking about the autonomous driving uh, airplanes. Our airplanes land. That's mm. almost totally autonomous. Uh, why does it work better than humans? Because we managed to remove all the some of the variable that we have on the road. So uh, the, the tarmac, the traffic, uh, well, weather condition, of course, cannot be controlled. But in this semi-controlled environment, airplane is able to land with a much uh, higher percentage of success autonomously rather than uh, driven by a human, unless the infrastructure will tremendously evolve in the next few years. I don't really see autonomous driving to reach that level of accuracy as for Mm. in the aeronautics. Uh, there are so many other variables involved. Infrastructure is definitely something that was not built for uh, autonomous driving. It was built for humans and their capabilities of understanding the environment around them, avoiding obstacles, avoiding each other. Keeping one and a half meters apart as well these days, I think. <laughs> a bit more if you're in a car and it's raining. <laughs> That's a really oh, yeah, unless, good point. Yeah. 
And Claudia, I want to, well, what's the article though, or the, the bit of news that's caught your attention uh, that you'd like to share with us this week? So I was checking the MIT Technology Review and there is this article regarding a controversial facial recognition tool, which is currently, allegedly currently, currently being used by the New York police. Uh, we're talking about uh, Clearview AI. Um, I, f- I first read about Clearview AI last year. It was a really nice article written by the New York Times, which are very, uh, very dystopic title. The secretive company that might end privacy as we know it. Um, that is dramatic. Yeah, <laughs> it's very dramatic. Uh, what are we talking about? So Clearview AI is an American company. Uh, built a database of publicly available uh, photographs from social media. And it's actually not very, um, it's not very clear how the database has been built in the, in the, it's been built in the past years. It's mentioned in general, uh, public available images, which in the light of the last data breach, uh, it might raise some a- uh, eyebrows mm-hmm. on how these data have been uh, collected that and how this data proliferated so much in the last year. Mm-hmm. Uh, whose mission, according to their uh, website, is to deliver the most comprehensive identity solutions in the world. We support law enforcement and national organization in their mission to identify victims and perpe- perpetrators. Uh, what is interesting of the article that has been published by the MIT Technology Review on the 9th of April is that. Um, Agents of the NYPD have been granted access to this database on their mobile phone and on their own private mobile, yeah, private mobile phone and email. Um, so I wonder what the level of, um, what the limitation of use it might be in this case, what the surveillance, the hierarchical surveillance may be. And it's interesting that um, how the New York Patrol Department first denied any institutional relationship with Clearview AI, formally or informally, quote, um, just for a few months after, for BuzzFeed, I guess, to reveal uh, personal emails between agents and uh, Clearview AI developers, um, where, quote, I just noticed your previous reply, app is working great. I've been working on different projects, analyzing cases that have social media subjects is leading to many more investigative leads, end quote. Um, it's really interesting. Also, in the light of the facial recognition ban that I guess it has been uh, promoted in, the, in, uh, in California last year, two years ago. Um, Interesting to see how on a federal level uh, facial recognition will be ruled in the US. Mm. Um, Clearview AI is definitely something we'll probably hear we'll talk about in the future. Again, that's why it's important to have clear values in the EU on how AI is used and what are the prohibited use cases. And this makes life uh, quite difficult for, I guess, a lot of businesses as well, looking at the at the US when you know, we, we speak about privacy laws as well sometimes and how every state seems to have a slightly different approach. And it's, it must be a real barrier, right? If you're, if you're a business and you're trying to operate in the US and, you know, California, New York, probably two of your biggest markets, if they're operating by two completely different sets of rules, that's it's the opposite of what the EU is trying to do, which is to create this more homogenous set of rules that, that cover every European country. 
Yeah, I guess so. I think also it's um, sometimes there there are also differences within Europe itself. Uh, for example, Germany has some more stringent kind of privacy rules. Um, I think also the the COVID nineteen pandemic kind of turned everything upside down in a way um mm. what what claudio was mentioning about clearview ai also brought to mind palantir in the way that you know this company which is very kind of opaque let's say um has essentially infiltrated europe uh during the covid19 pandemic you know with the promise uh, to Greece, for example, is is quite a, a well-known uh, case. Yeah, with their example, essentially offering uh, their technology for free uh, to these public bodies, promising that, you know, this is going to help you visualize um, a bunch of different data points around the country. Um, it's going to help um, address the pandemic and, uh, and help it end quicker, help it come to an end quicker so we can get back to normality. Um, and the problem is that a lot of the times uh, these contracts are not revealed to the public. They're, they're mm-hmm. also not made publicly available through freedom of information requests. It's very difficult for the public to know what's happening. There's there's really a lack of transparency. Um I'm not sure whether an investigation would reveal that, that this technology is actually contravening data protection law, um, but it's certainly interesting to follow these kinds of developments and similar to what we were talking about before, you know, around different exceptions that exist mm-hmm. um, for public authorities in, let's say, in times of emergencies or um, in the interests of security Um which is fine, but those those use cases should be limited to that time only and not extend beyond that time frame in any way, shape or form. Absolutely. But I think the difficulty here is always, uh, yeah, who sets those limits and who's who's doing the enforcing? You know, because ultimately if we're, we're leaving public bodies to use this technology and then we're leaving it to other public bodies to enforce and monitor its use you can see how there might be maybe perhaps a bit of a conflict of interest. And as a side note, Palantir, by the way, has to be one of the creepiest company names uh, I've ever come across. And if anyone hasn't read Lord of the Rings, the Palantirs are the all-powerful seeing stones which allow you to spy on people across the world. So I mm-hmm. I think they were pretty transparent with their intentions when they set the company up. True. <laughs> Well, I think uh, Claudio, Bianca, it's been it's been a really fun discussion. I think we've covered a lot of ground. Um, yeah, AI, facial recognition, robots, dystopian futures. This episode really had it all. So, no, thank you both for taking the time for for joining the discussion today. Thank you for having us. Really enjoyed it. Thank you. And I, uh, yeah, I do hope we'll see you again in future for more of these discussions. Um, so thanks again and of course thanks also to our listeners uh, for joining us and just as a note that we do hope to make this installment or this particular discussion a regular feature uh, on talking insights looking at privacy looking at all things tech um, perhaps with Claudio and Bianca again perhaps with some other uh, people who work in this space as well so if you have any feedback or you have any suggestions on how we can improve this in future please do get in touch via podcast at smr.org until the next time as always please do stay safe stay healthy and stay curious. So Claudio Bianca, thanks once again. And to our listeners, we'll see you again next time.